Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. An update to the long-running cloud computing security program known as FedRAMP has entered a new phase. Comments closed Friday, and now the authorities at the General Services Administration and mainly the Office of Management and Budget are percolating. For what the industry is hoping for, we turn to the Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council, Stephanie Castro. And Stephanie, before we get to FedRAMP, I just want to get what is the contractor community thinking about the seemingly headlong rush toward either another CR or coming from the mouths of members of Congress themselves, a shutdown. Well, thanks again for having me, Tom, and it's a pleasure to be here for your your uh, the last show that I'll be on for for 2023. You know, you raise a very very interesting point about the chatter that we're hearing both on the Hill and in the executive branch, and of course we are always chattering here in the private sector, wondering what the government's going to be doing. I will note that back in December, early December, um, Speaker Johnson sent out what we call a dear colleague letter to every member of Congress, saying that he is not supportive of what he calls, quote, any further short-term extensions, end quote. And that leaves open the possibility of full-year appropriations or a long-term CR. It doesn't close the door on a a full-year continuing resolution. And if you were a betting person, the smart money would be on having exactly that, a long-term continuing resolution. A couple of other points I'd like to, to remind folks, particularly in the contracting world, is that there are two separate deadlines for the current CRs. One is for BILCON, Veterans Affairs, Agriculture, Energy, Water, and what we call THUD, which is Transportation, Housing, and Urban Development. That deadline is January 19th. Two weeks later, the rest of the government, the CR for them expires. And so we've got this interesting dynamic that we could be under a partial shutdown come January 19th if we don't have have another CR in any form, short or long term. This dynamic is something that we're watching very, very closely, and we are scrubbing to make sure we know what programs are included in that earlier deadline. I think in some sense, people would almost prefer a short shutdown followed by appropriations than a full year continuing resolution. I think it's fair to say that some people would welcome that. The other piece that overlays all of this is the Fiscal Responsibility Act that passed last June, rather. That has a couple of interesting pieces to it that we are still working through. One is if we don't have full year appropriations by December 31st, which we won't, there is an automatic cut to spending. And then if we don't have a 12 bills passed for their full year appropriations by April 30th, there's going to be at least Congress is calling appropriations process sequestration, where all non-exempt programs are subject to a cut. These are not small cuts. We are looking at something in the order of 130 to $150 billion here in FY24 that are really going to be tough. And I'll give you a, an example, Tom. One of the exempt programs that the president has indicated will continue to be exempt is military personnel. So if DOD is subject to a cut, like the rest of the government, sequestration, you don't get a choice where programs you know, are cut, everyone gets cut. A lot of the cut will be borne by contracts. It's not going to be in the military personnel account. So anything that would have been cut from those accounts gets shifted over probably to contracts. Um, So we are watching very, very closely to see what happens with the sequestration piece here in calendar 24. And getting back to the question of a full year CR, unlike a 
temporary shutdown, which would be a rolling affair. This would be for the year. The cuts would simply apply across the board, except for those exempt programs you mentioned. Exactly right. Contractors then must be battening down the hatches in many ways. We are recommending that PSC member companies look very carefully at what their programs can sustain. One other element that I want to throw into this mix, Tom, is is we've been hearing, again, chatter about how the Hill is negotiating border security, immigration policy, etc. And I understand that folks on the Hill are going to the, the White House and saying, you can take executive action in this area. You don't need to wait for legislation. But what's all tied up in that is the supplemental piece of the appropriations pie. And that is to say the White House back in October asked for $61 billion for Ukraine, $13 billion for border security, etc. All of that will be non-exempt, right? So anything cut, even if they happen to pass appropriations for these these areas like Ukraine, like border security, those are subject to cuts as well. And so that that's something that we got to keep in mind. We're speaking with Stephanie Castro, Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. And let's get to FedRAMP. Now, again, the comments are in. People have made what they want to say about these. OMB, I guess, is the main authority here on how this program will be updated. What uh, What are you hoping for? OMB circulated a draft memo that it contained guidance for FedRAMP, um, which, as you know, is the uh, Federal Risk Authorization Management Program, mostly managed by GSA. They received more than 200 sets of comments. Uh, PSC is among those. What we are looking for mostly is more collaborative engagement with industry. Let's be honest, Tom, the cyberspace is fast evolving, and that cannot be said necessarily of government bureaucracy. So when we look at authorization pathways, when we look at continuous monitoring of of cloud services, we really have to have very close collaboration so that the government can understand what industry is seeing in the threat domain, but also in what cloud services capabilities and how quickly they are evolving. And so PSC and our member companies are really looking for closer Uh, coordination, collaboration, uh, real cooperation between the government and and the industry that supports it. In many ways, it seems like FedRAMP has evolved away from, at least to some degree, its original idea, which was that if, if something is certified for use by this agency because of the FedRAMP process, then everyone else can rest assured that they too can use that cloud service. But that's not how it's actually worked out. It's almost like security clearance where you have it for the CIA, but it's not good enough for the NSA. Well, reciprocity, Tom, is something that is addressed a lot in this OMB draft memo. And I would mention that, you know, OMB was under no requirement to circulate this publicly for comment. So we welcomed the opportunity to give them some real feedback on this draft memo before it goes final. Reciprocity when you talk about what FedRAMP authorizes, and then there are individual agency authorizers. And so the question then becomes, if one entity authorizes it, is that authorization still good for other entities? And so this new memo talks about that. It talks about um, the FedRAMP board. It talks about GSA's role. And we're really looking forward to seeing how this gets implemented. And again, highlighting how important it is to have these iterative conversations with contractors Um, so that they're not stuck in some sort of inflexible 
regime that we can actually evolve as the, the threat evolves. And finally, Stephanie, just before Christmas, I guess, and dated yesterday, the proposed rule on the cybersecurity maturity model certification program long awaited by the industry was issued from the Defense Department. What's the early take on it from the contractor's standpoint? Glad you mentioned the, the timing of all this, Tom, because it really is an early Christmas present or the day after Christmas present, depending on whether you, you tie yourself to publication. But in discussions with industry about this, the overall sentiment is it it's about time. And, and I mean that in a couple of ways, right? The CMMC interim rule came out in late 2020, just over three years ago. And the administration at that time was in no hurry to uh, incorporate language into contracts. And then the Biden administration came in and, and uh, began a, a review of CMMC program writ large. And so we've been in holding pattern for just about three years now as industry. And you know it's a common refrain of, among those of us at PSC that America's contractors need a consistent approach to cybersecurity, and we also need time to implement the proposed rules. So digesting several hundreds of pages over the holidays is, is, a, is a good start, um, but it's, again, the beginning of this conversation uh, with a proposed rule. And we've got a couple of points that we've been iterating with our contractor community. What are those points? Well, I'm glad you asked. Again, on that theme of it's about time, we took a pause in terms of CMMC, but the threat did not take a pause. And what we are seeing in trends in cybersecurity now is fundamentally different from what we were seeing three years ago when the interim rule was published. And of course, it's going to be different three years in the future from now. And so we're really looking at how CMMC itself can evolve as a program and the requirements have the flexibility so that contractors can meet the threat, whatever it is, where it or wherever it is and whenever it occurs. The second point that we're highlighting with folks is, you know, the CMMC proposed rule seems to be significantly focused on technical data for weapon systems. And as representatives of the services industry, we are over here jumping up and down saying, don't forget about where the threat is growing in our arena. And that is to say, um, cybersecurity and cyber vulnerabilities are growing potentially in, in the services area. And so we're looking to see how CMMC can adapt to not just weapon systems, but to services. Another point is flow down. You know, in our world, uh, we have lots and lots of subcontractors. And so a subcontractor that is working at the a fifth sub-tier level or the 10th sub-tier level may not actually know they're on a Department of Defense contract. And they're certainly not going to certify that they are CMMC compliant. Um, and so how do we address the flow down of these requirements? And finally, this is a point, Tom, that I know is familiar to you because we've made it before on your show. And that is to say, we have defense contractors in our community and we have contractors who work primarily with civilian agencies, but many contractors operate with both defense and civilian agencies. And so what CMMC is, is a DOD requirement um, coming down the pike that defense contractors have to comply with. They're going to incur costs that their civilian contractors are not necessarily going to incur because VA, for example, won't have the same requirements. HHS, DHS, they won't have the same requirements. So what happens to those contractors who work in both of those spaces, incurring costs to comply with DOD and running up their, their costs when they're trying to bid for civilian agency contracts? All right. So lots to dissect here and above all, read them and make your comments and get them in. 
Yeah, 60-day comment period. I, I've heard word that people will be asking for more time. I think that might be reasonable in this because it is hundreds of pages to digest. But yeah, send in lots of comments because this is an area of, uh, of a lot of long-awaited changes. So we're reading it with bated breath. Yeah, hundreds of pages to say, have good cybersecurity or else. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important, so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts. 
uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, 
I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm-hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role And over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, 
somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, Your passion is infectious. Your uh, intelligence and and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.